0: There was a time about four or five years ago where um, we were in the vehicular transition. We had uh, two two children, and our youngest child was about to be 16, and we realized that meant uh, a change with the vehicles, and we decided to give my son my car. So he would be driving my vehicle around, and my wife and I said, we're just gonna share. Uh, We're going to try to be financially responsible here, so we'll just share a car. Our daughter's driving one, our son will now be driving the other, and this third car will be ours, and I'll just take you to work, and then I'll pick you up, and we'll just figure stuff out. It sounded like a decent plan, and my wife, who is much more conservative financially, uh, said, okay, I, I, we can make this work. And then about three days later, she said, honey, uh, I think it's time to get a fourth vehicle. And I said, are you, you sure? Uh, I'm enjoying my mornings with you. She said, it's not that I don't enjoy my mornings with you, but let's, we just need to do something different. I said, so I have your blessing to shop for vehicles. Just make sure. And she said, yeah, just, it's time. Maybe you can go ahead and get whatever it was that you were wanting and it, that you know, you've held off for whatever reason. We'll, we'll be fine. I said, all right. And uh, I decided that I wanted to be a Jeep guy. You know, some of you are motorcycle guys, some of you are sports car guys. I had been a Mustang guy since I was 15 years old and i had had a 65 Mustang and then a 2004 Mustang and that was, that was me. So I was ready to now be a Jeep guy and any time I saw other Jeep guys, maybe some of you were there, I would see the, you know, the top off and the doors wide open and they're just driving, the wind's going, the sun, I'm, this is awesome to me. This is exactly who I want to be. I could picture myself as a Jeep guy and anytime I'm walking through a parking lot, if a Jeep was parked, I just stopped and lingered and looked and thought, this is my chance. So I shopped around, quickly found out that being a Jeep guy is one of the most expensive guys that you can become. <laughs> And so I looked and thought, well, I don't know if this is going to work. And so I really looked hard. I called a few friends, and I I knew someone who actually had a family member who uh, owned a, a, a lot that had Jeeps. And so I thought, okay, maybe I'll just work this way and at least know that I got the best deal that I could possibly get. And I, got, I found me a Jeep. It wasn't new, obviously, but I got me a Jeep. And it was a cool Jeep with the Army green, had big black tires on there. And I went ahead and splurged and bought some rims. And I, I, I kind of, I got the opportunity to be the Jeep guy. And I loved being a Jeep guy. And those three days were amazing. <laughs> um, on day four, check engine light popped up. You know, I bought it as is, and I could go into all the non-biblical or spiritual parts of the story, so I'll move on. But I went back and said, hey, I know as is means as is, but literally, 72 hours, is that as is? And so we had interesting conversations and talks about uh, philosophies of uh, business, and, and anyway, in the end... They said I tell you what, okay, we'll take care of this in house and we'll replace the transmission. I was incredibly pleased, thankful, grateful. And then the next 2 days I was a Jeep guy. And then I got the light again. And then 4 months I put in 3 transmissions and a water pump in my vehicle. And that was the end of Jeep Guy Chad. Like that was that was it for me. But I had so many pictures of what that was going to be, of me driving down the road with the top off and doors off and just, that was the life that I wanted. I didn't know how windy it would be, but other than that, it was an awesome, awesome couple of days of my life. And all of us, whether it's a vehicle or a relationship or a job or a school, a blind date, whatever it is, we have expectations, And most of the time, our expectations go unmet. And no one is doing anything wrong, necessarily. You didn't fail, or they didn't fail, or y'all didn't fail. But the expectations just were not met. And so there's always this period of time where you have to step back and reassess. Like, I thought I wanted a new Jeep, I looked and shopped, and then I stepped back and said, okay, that is not going to happen. So let's reassess the dream. Like, is it possible? And there are times along the way, whether it's a house or a relationship or a job or a new city, you've got expectations, they go unmet. It doesn't mean you did something wrong or you have to kill the idea. It just means you step back and say, okay, were my expectations realistic? I mean, what was I really thinking? And then let's reassess and then move forward. And in the story of God, about 30 years after Jesus resurrected and was gone, the church was at a period of, let's just reassess, because this is not the way it was 30 years ago. And the church would get together, and many of them were eyewitnesses of some things that had happened while Jesus was there. The majority of them had family members or neighbors who were a part of the deal and they heard the story and they were now part of the church and they remembered in the beginning or they heard stories in the beginning 30 years prior where God was just on fire and moving and things were going and it was something to consider. No one could ignore what had happened. There was still really fresh all the conversations about the resurrection and then now 30 years later the Roman Empire has decided that being a Jesus guy is not a great thing. And so they're literally being dragged out of their worship environments and they're being taken to jail. Some are executed, some are put on poles and set on fire to light the streets as a warning and as a sign. I mean, it's different. And the entire church is having to step back and reassess. Like, what were we expecting here? Did we expect that this Jesus movement was gonna overtake the world, that in the end it was gonna be incredibly popular to be a follower of Jesus and that being what people are labeling us as Christians, that was a label given to them and we're, we're gonna be Christians and therefore we're going to conquer the world and we're, what did we think was going to happen? Enter Mark. And Mark decides at this time, that the time is right to write the Jesus movement according to him. So the gospel according to Mark. And if you have a Bible, we're going to take a look at the book of Mark today. We looked at Matthew last week, and we're looking over these four weeks at the four accounts of Jesus' life according to Matthew, and then Mark, next week Luke, and then John. But Mark's gospel is actually the first one that most believe is written. Archaeologists, those who have uncovered the scrolls and such, and, and looked into history, have decided Mark is actually the first. Um, It is the shortest of the four gospels and the reason is he's so direct and to the point. He doesn't have a lot of details, not a lot of flowery talk about why this happened and where we were. Everything's just to the point. So ladies, yes, your husband wrote the book of Mark. It's just, here we go, I don't know anything else, here are the facts, moving on. Well, you left out this and this, and I told you what was most important, we're moving on. That's kind of the way Mark writes. And there's, there is drama, there's action, there's a lot of energy, it reads in a powerful kind of way. In fact, when I was in college and I was being exposed a little bit to some things that I beyond just reading the text, I remember one of my professors saying, "Mark is the action gospel," and I immediately was drawn to it. But Mark is a little different. It's he, he reads and it reads and it, he wrote in a way that just engages you with the power of what happened and not necessarily giving you all the details of why. Luke has more of an elegant structure, and as we looked last week, Matthew, he goes into a lot of detail for obvious reasons, and we talked about that last week, but Mark just gets to the point. But Mark's main idea here, the main thought as you go through the entire book, and we're not going to read the whole book today, but as you go through the entire book of Mark, he is nailing this unmet expectations theme, and he's writing From what we can tell, around 65 AD, so about 30 years after Jesus was resurrected, around the time where this persecution was at its most intense. It's almost as if he's choosing to write this account of what Jesus happened as a way of saying, hey guys, let's reassess. What did we think was going to happen? What did we think the gospel movement was going to look like? What did we think following Jesus was going to be like? Did we think we were all just gonna gather around and these tongues of fire were gonna come out of the sky and the wind was always blowing and we're speaking in languages that we don't even know that we know and we're understanding each other? Did we think that was going to be the entire experience or was there not a part of us that looked at this life of Jesus and thought, okay, this actually makes a little more sense. And he structures his book in a different kind of way. There are two halves and we're gonna look at a part in the middle, which I guess technically means we're not, Two ha- anyway, but we're, there's two, two halves and we're gonna look at this what's sandwiched in between them. And in the first part, the first eight chapters to be specific, Mark is writing about the identity of Jesus, who he is. And he establishes the fact that Jesus presented himself as Messiah and King. And the proof is in what he did, what he was able to do, the way he taught, the way he taught with authority, the wisdom he had, the power, the miracles, even resurrection kind of power that was showing up before his own resurrection. There were incredible things taking place all around and people were able to look and say, if he's the Messiah, that would track because that's what a Messiah would say. If he is the king, then that makes sense because that's how the king would act. This is how he would face opposition. This is how he would handle hurt. This is how he would handle abandonment. This is how he would handle conflict. This is how he would handle disease and sickness. And this is the kind of thing he would do. It was working along the way. So for those eight chapters, Mark gives us a lot of powerful examples and I love the fact Mark doesn't even have the birth of Jesus. He's just moving to the stuff. He's like, yeah, he was born he grew up, but now let's get to the stuff. Here we are. and He jumps right into this powerful ministry of Jesus. And the first eight chapters is, in many ways, a demonstration of who he is. But then the last half of the book of Mark says, okay, now that this is who I am, this is what this means. And this is where the expectation rub happens. Because you would think if he's the Messiah, the chosen one that we've been waiting on for generations, and now he's here, and if he's the king of the world, the creator of the world, able to do anything he can do, anything he wants to do, rather, then surely he's just gonna step in and squash all the opposition. He's gonna step in. Anyone who's going to oppose this movement is gonna get put aside. He's gonna put his foot forward. He's going to establish himself as the king of the world. He's going to do kingly things and messiahly things, whatever that would be. Like he's going to be the Messiah and the king. But the last half of Mark doesn't read that way. In fact, it's as if Jesus said, because I am the Messiah and because I am the king, this means I'm now going to live as a suffering servant to all the people in all the world, which makes no sense. If you can do anything, then why would you allow yourself to go through this? If you can heal anything, why would you allow this to happen? If you can raise the dead, why would you voluntarily give your own life? None of that makes sense. So we have in between these two parts, a middle section where three times mark purposefully places three conversations that Jesus has with his followers, and three times he tells them, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna rise. When I was new to the Bible and read through this, I remember Sunday school teachers telling me that Jesus told the people what was gonna happen before it happened. And it just made No sense to me why the disciples would then be surprised when the tomb is rolled, or when the stone is rolled away from the tomb, and on Easter morning, it's empty, and they all act like they don't know what happened. Well, if Jesus already told them, and and then the more you read, you think, well, maybe he just wasn't clear. He was speaking in parables. Now you see me, now you don't, but you will again, and maybe it's just all mysterious. But as we're going to see, there was no hiding what was happening Jesus was so clear and it got clear as the conversations went. So let's look at that first conversation, Mark chapter one, or Mark chapter eight rather, verse 31, Jesus has just asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? What are the rumors going around about me? And after saying a few options, he said, well, what do you say? In fact, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, well, you're the Messiah. And in verse 31, it says he began then to teach them that the Son of Man, which is how Jesus referred to himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus is not speaking in very mysterious terms. He says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. And Peter took him aside and said, you're not, you're not going to die. We're not going to allow that to happen. Don't worry, Jesus. We've got your back. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand. You're thinking through your own terms and you're not thinking in kingdom terms. Now, one of the things that we know about Mark is that if this is indeed his gospel and from all accounts it seems to be, it doesn't end with love mark, but we've looked into history and this is the best the church leaders at the time could come up with the author. And if this is indeed Mark, Mark shows up a couple of times in the book of Acts, but just in small parts. But history tells us, even history written by non-followers of Jesus, that there was a man named Mark that served alongside Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, while they were in Rome. So Peter's in Rome serving the church, and he has someone helping him, Mark. And Mark eventually decides to write this down. So Peter was actually a source of information for Mark as he's writing down, as God's, of course, leading and guiding him, but he's, he's putting this together and he has his own perspective and God works through him and he's leaning on Peter. And I've just, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, what would that have been like? Mark's in the middle of writing and he grabs a new pen and starts writing and says, okay, I'm at that part, Peter, but he called you Satan? Satan? Uh, you don't have to put that in, Mark. Yeah, you you don't even need to leave that. Let, let's just leave that out and move on. Uh, I think that's kind of a big deal. I think I'll put it in here. I, I don't know that people will understand. They'll think that I'm I'm not Satan. So let's just moving on. No, I think we're going to put that in chapter eight. Like I I'm going to write this in and keep this. If I'm Peter, I'm doing everything I can to say he was kind of looking across when he said, "Get behind me, Satan." I'm not quite sure it was me, but. So Mark's writing this, Peter's helping him work through this. And you've got this really, really difficult part of the the story. And Jesus looks at Peter, his closest companion, and says, get behind me, Satan. You You don't understand what's going on here. So they move on and they're still traveling. Jesus knows that people are not understanding, grasping what he's trying to teach. So he wanted to teach them again. Before they got to crowds, because he's giving them a lot of insider information along the way anyway. And in Mark chapter nine, we get the second conversation Jesus had about this. In verse 30, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So he told them again, and I still, from my perspective, it's still hard to read they didn't understand. I'm gonna die, three days later, I'm gonna rise. What do you mean? I'm gonna die, and three days later, I'm gonna rise. What does that mean? I, I, I have a hard time grasping how they could not grasp this. But their perspective was that a Messiah and King does not live out his life as a suffering servant. That's just not what he does. If he's the Messiah, if he's the king, he's not going to go through this. But because the last time someone spoke up, they got called Satan, no one's saying anything now. It says they didn't understand, but they were afraid to ask him about it. And I don't know if he had a moment for Q&A at the end of all his talks, probably not. But if he did, okay, I'm gonna die. Three days later, I'm gonna rise. Any questions? Everybody clear, and he walks away, and they look at each other like, I don't don't know what he's saying. I don't understand what's going on. Well, ask him, he called you the devil. I'm not gonna ask him what he's saying because obviously that's the wrong response. So two times he has been incredibly clear with them what his path is going to be. Well, they're on their way, and Jesus informs them they're going to Jerusalem, And if you read through, I won't get into this now, but the disciples were not for this. They knew opposition was rising, danger levels were increasing. They thought, if you go to Jerusalem, something bad is going to happen. And if I'm the narrator, I'm going, I don't know, maybe he's gonna die and three days later he's gonna rise. But they're thinking, we don't wanna go there because bad things are going to happen. But Jesus set his sights on Jerusalem and they were going to Jerusalem. And in chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus goes even further in explaining. He gives a little more detail and says, I'm not just going to die. I'm going to be beaten I'm gonna be flogged, I'm gonna face a trial, I'm gonna go through all these terrible things That I'm gonna die, but I'm going to rise again. So three times, Jesus is explaining to them that even though he is Messiah and King, he is also going to be a suffering servant. And they're struggling to grasp how these two things can work together. Because their expectation was, if you're Messiah and King, then we are about to reign with you, and it's going to be a beautiful thing. And Jesus Jesus said, I'm Messiah, King, yes, but I'm about to suffer in ways you can't even begin to imagine. So how do we put that together? It was difficult for them to understand. It was difficult for them to accept. But if we go a step further, I think maybe what it was the most difficult aspect of this for them was that Jesus invited them on the same journey. Let's go back to just a few moments, it appears, after that first conversation where Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up, Peter got called Satan, that, that conversation well, Mark chapter eight, verse 34, it says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. So he makes the crowd even bigger while Satan's feeling like, or uh, Peter's feeling like a real champ at that moment. He brings people in and this is what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Now, we read this 2,000 years after the fact, and many of you are already followers of Jesus, and I could even talk figuratively and symbolically and not necessarily lose you because you are with me on this journey, and you've been trying to understand all your life the story of God, but we have to get away from our perspective and think about what would it have been like to be a disciple or to be in the crowd and to be brought in by Jesus. And Jesus turns and says, all right, if any of you are going to follow me, you gotta be willing to die. How different an invitation would that have been for you instead of whatever invitation you got from me or from a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, someone that you trusted, maybe a family member, that said, don't you want to get rid of the guilt and shame and the responsibility of holding on to all the sins and mistakes you've made? Well, of course I do. Well, just give it to Jesus. Well, I'd love to do that. If he'll take it, here you go. But, I mean, I wonder how many of us sat in the seat like this and had someone say, would you like to follow Jesus? Then do you want to die? <laughs> all right, well, hold on. Like, maybe he means figuratively, And the truth is, not everyone died because of their connection and relationship to Jesus, physically died. So perhaps, now we know Peter and many of the disciples did, but maybe there's something more. And if Mark had not written anything else, if he had just run out of ink or said, I'm I'm finished, I'm done, then this would have been a struggle to move on from. But Mark does give us more. So I want us to look at two things that he mentioned here that help us understand what it means to actually follow Jesus. And the first is found right after the second conversation Jesus had, where he told them, hey, you're gonna, uh, I'm gonna die, and do you have any questions? And no one said anything, even though they didn't understand that, that conversation. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So they're traveling together in a group, and along the way, they have little conversations, sub-conversations happening. They're not all connected or holding hands. They're just a group of men, followers of Jesus, heading down, having different conversations. They get to where they're going and Jesus says, what were you talking about back there on the road? I know you were arguing about something. And I immediately, when I think about this, think about sitting in the back seat on vacation and my sister and I are back there and my dad turns the radio down and says, what'd you say? (laughs) Hmm? What were y'all saying? Well, I mean, there's just this immediate, uncomfortable, cringy moment of, we were. Well, I don't know. Did, I, did you say? Any, I didn't say anything. Like that whole thing happening, and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, "What were you talking about on the road? the The road? What? Which road? Like, okay. Jesus is going to play their game. He says, "Fine. I know what you're saying." And he says, "You're arguing over who's going to be the greatest among you." He says, "You're missing it. You're missing the whole point." In fact, the one of you that is at the back of the line, is going to be the one at the front of the line in the end. In other words, if you're going to follow after me, first, you've got to be willing to get low. You've got to be willing to get low, to lower yourself, to lower your pride, to let go of your ego and be willing to do the hard stuff. You've got to be willing to get low to follow me. You've got to be willing to grasp the concept of humility of understanding that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to do some really, really difficult things. You're going to have to set aside what is actually deserved. You have to set aside what you're owed and be willing to put it to the side for a moment and trust that I am actually going to reward you in the end, which is exactly what Jesus did as a suffering servant. He set aside his glory for a while. He spent time with us. He lowered himself even to the point of washing the nasty feet of those that he traveled with on those roads. Allowed himself to put aside all the glory that he deserved to serve. And there's a chance that the thing that is going to keep you from experiencing all that he has in store for you as a follower of Jesus is your pride and your ego and your unwillingness to step out of the light. Now, I'm also 100% aware that I'm talking about humility with a microphone wrapped around my head, standing on a stage in front of you, holding out this position as pastor and speaking with literal lights on my face. And I hope that you hope that my heart is in the right place. You hope that When I'm away from you, I'm on my face praying and interceding for you. You hope that when I'm away that I care more about your faith than just did you show up on a Sunday. You're hoping that when I'm not here that I am practicing holiness in my own life, that I'm pursuing a relationship with God that goes beyond whatever role or job I have. You're hoping that all that is real. And I read scripture and I realize that If I'm not real, if I'm doing all of this so that I could stand here and feel good about myself and you can leave going, wow, he must really love the Lord. What that is, is God saying, Chad, enjoy all your little applause here because this is where it's gonna end. I got nothing for you on the other side. If you want your inheritance now, enjoy the little semi-glory you have. But if you wanna follow me, you've gotta be willing to get low to put all of that aside, to humble yourself and trust that I'll be your applause on the other side. You're not gonna get your inheritance here, but I'm paying attention and I'm gonna give you more than you ever dreamed that you were losing by getting low. So following Jesus, one, taking up our cross means getting low. The second thing I want us to see about that means that we have to move to the third conversation, In fact, a moment right before that third conversation. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Disciples say, don't go. Jesus says, we're going anyway. A stranger approaches them on the road. The stranger comes up to Jesus and has the confidence, I'm gonna say arrogance because I think it's legit here, the confidence to say, Jesus, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says to the man, well, you know the laws, you know all the commands, you know what to do. And he's so confident in his attempts to be that kind of guy that he tells Jesus, well, that's the thing. I actually have already done that. I keep all the laws. I'm incredibly religious and moral, but I feel like I'm missing something. I'm not sure. There's just something that's not a part of the plan here. But I'm doing all of those things. I understand what the law is and I respect it and I'm trying to obey it. And then Jesus realizes, okay, this is someone who actually wants to follow. So he says to him in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. So Jesus was not saying you can't be earthly, from an earthly perspective, successful and follow me. He just said, you've gotta be willing to let go of everything. You've gotta be willing to put it all out there. I might take it, I might remove it, I might just bless it and double it up in your hands. I might take it for a season and give it back even better. You just got to be willing to open up your hands and be willing to let go that hobby, that job, that dollar, that whatever it is that is so important to you. He said, it can't be more important than following me. So the other thing, other than getting low, is letting go. He says, if you're gonna follow me, you've got to be willing to get low and to let go. Jesus modeled that for us. He said, look into your lives, look into your hands, see what is temporary and be willing to let go. We're wondering at times why we can't grasp this whole Jesus thing. And our hands are so full of things that are temporary and not important. And that's actually what's keeping us from grasping what it is that Jesus is calling us to. And just like this rich man on the side of the road, who just had to turn around. Imagine finding Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, running up to him, getting into the crowd, asking him this one question you have. And then realizing that you care too much about stuff and you have to turn around and leave. Imagine that walk, just to turn around and say, I I can't do that and just to walk off. And there's a lot of honesty there, also a lot of sadness. He wanted to follow, but he couldn't because he cared too much about stuff. Well, Jesus brings both of these get low and let go ideas together in verse 29. Mark records a quote of Jesus and he says, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So he says, you get low. You're willing to do all of that to let go of stuff, you're gonna be blessed. And I'm gonna give you more than you had when you put it in my hands. He says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Get low and let go. Jesus said, trust me with it. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to come to me and say, this is what I'd love to do. This is what I'd love to be. This is what I've worked hard for, Jesus. Please, please don't take this from me. So you've gotta be willing to raise it up. You've gotta be willing to hold it up and then see what I'll do. And if I take it from you, it's because I'm gonna give you back more than you ever dreamed. You just got to be willing to trust me in this. So following Jesus was choosing to die to that me first kind of life. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I'll close with this. Jesus said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark's book teaches us that Jesus is not the king that we expected, but he is the king that we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being willing to lay aside all of your glory, to step out of heaven, to lower yourself to becoming a man, to lower yourself to being willing to experience all that we have experienced here on this earth not just as a demonstration, but it certainly does give us a demonstration of your call. And God, many of us, myself included, God, I've known you since I was seven years old and no one told me I had to be willing to die to follow you. And I know when I came to you, my mindset was, I just wanna be free from being a sinner. I wanted to know what it is to know my Creator. It was an innocent desire to step into everything that I did understand at that time. But since that time, God, you have taught me much. And there are moments along the way when I wonder if I would have been so eager to follow you if I had known what it was you were asking and what it was you were requiring. God, maybe there are others in this room who are in that same spot of needing to reevaluate and reassess what's going on and, and take a fresh look at what it is they've agreed to as a follower of Jesus, that following you is not about just reaping a reward. Following you is about laying everything down and being willing to let go of it all and trust that you are going to respond with all that we need. And maybe for some of us, maybe all of us, you end up giving us back more than we ever were willing to give up. But God, what is clear is that you do not bless stingy hearts. You do not bless those who love other things more than they love you. And you are not willing to put your hand of favor on us if we're not willing to lower ourselves to the point of serving the people that are sitting next to us right now. That doesn't mean we all wash feet, we understand that, Lord, but it does mean we're willing to let other people's needs be before our own. So God, we repent and we admit that we have not always approached following you in that way, and we ask that you would set our hearts right and bring us back to that point of following you with trust and purity and reckless abandonment, and I I pray that all of us could go back to that childlike faith, that moment when we just said, Jesus... I'm coming. And we ran into your arms and didn't really understand anything else. And God, as years have gone on, as experiences have happened, we've we've lost that. So take us back to that point. One day we're going to stand before you. We will fall to our knees and we will call out, holy is the Lord. And God, if there's someone in this place who's not ready to meet you face to face, I pray this is the moment they call out and say, I'm coming home. God, thank you for your love and for your mercy. Bring us to a place in our relationship with you that we've never been. Take us further, take us deeper. Help us to be willing to let go and to get low. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, please?